healthcare innovates brutally slowly. And so I think one of the things I'm excited about in this particular role is to help move healthcare innovation more towards the speed of technology innovation, where we can really make things happen in a way that is responsive to the market and responsive to the need of the most important people who are the patients. Hey everybody, and welcome to The Slice, a podcast about the people behind innovation in healthcare. I'm your host, Justin Barad, co-founder and CEO of OsoVR, orthopedic surgeon, and pizza enthusiast. Each week, we hear the thrilling stories of innovators driving change and improving health around the world. Let's get started. Today, I'm really happy to announce we have a very special guest, Dr. Mike Ast. Dr. Ast is a joint replacement specialist and orthopedic surgeon at the Hospital for Special Surgery and was recently promoted to Chief Medical Innovation Officer. We're going to be talking a little bit about his career journey today and his incredible training and not only his journey in becoming an orthopedic surgeon, but also an innovator, both in technology and business. So Dr. Ast, Mike, uh, thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks, Justin. It's uh, it's great to be here, and always good to uh, to talk to you. I'm so excited. You know, I've known you for a number of years, but you know, we've talked a little bit about kind of growing up and things like that. But I, I don't know a whole lot. Can you tell me a little bit about like the early days of Mike Ast, and you know how he even got interested in medicine in the first place? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm one of those people who got interested in orthopedics and then realized orthopedics was about medicine. So sort of backwards way. I uh, <laughs> I grew up a gymnast, so I was a, a college level gymnast. Grew up my whole life. Um, have that same story with most of us who went into orthopedics, had an injury, the injury led me to the physician, and that sort of led my career to orthopedics and to medicine. And I said, well, that's a cool job. I want to do that. What do you have to do? Well, you have to go to med school. I said, great, I'll go to med school. And then it said, I got to get into orthopedics. I said, great, I'll do that. But it's interesting that some of the early experience I had with medicine actually actually wasn't great. I had a hip injury as a kid that was misdiagnosed. I was actually on two surgical schedules, like ready to have surgery that I never needed for diagnoses that I didn't have. Hmm. And that led me to two very interesting things. Number one, it led me to HSS as a patient when I was a kid, because I grew up in New York and they said, well, nobody can figure out what's wrong with you. Go to that big hospital in New York City. Uh, someone there will know. I never knew that. Yeah. And so actually, because I was a gymnast and I had this hip injury, they said, go to the doctor for the ballet, the New York City ballet, obviously tons of uh, hip injuries and high level ballerinas. And the doctor named Tony Rose, who is still one of my colleagues today, diagnosed me within four seconds of me standing up in the room. He heard my hip snap, told me what it was, said, don't get surgery and sent me on my way. And so the two lessons I learned is number one, that was totally worth it to go into the city and not have surgery I didn't need. But number two was the sort of inconsistency that you see in medicine, right? And then as you a million times over, your story's a whole lot like that too, where you learned a lot about medicine through your experiences in your family and your family's experiences in medicine. And you can see how there's a lot of inconsistency either in our education or in uh, our implementation along the way. And just like your journey through medical school, mine was probably pretty similar. Went to college, went to medical school. And more and more what you see is that like the goal should always be for all of us, hey, how can we make sure that every patient has access to a appropriately trained physician who's going to give them the correct diagnosis on the first try and provide maybe the correct either medical or surgical care each time. And optimizing that almost becomes more important than optimizing sort of making the best person better. You want to make everyone great. And so it was an interesting thing that I learned sort of the hard way through a patient's experience when I was 14 years old. Wow. I never knew that. That's such a compelling story. Was that in your personal statement when you were applying to med school residency? Not the wrong diagnosis part. 
the part about the gymnast and I, you know I've, I've had a bunch of injuries and always been in and out of the uh, out of the orthopedist office and the orthopedist who ultimately ended up taking care of me unrelated to that particular injury is still someone I know well his son is actually a, a sports medicine doc out at Stanford and I'm still pretty close with them Wow yeah and I think it's it's funny I, I talk a lot about a lot of the same challenges where there's this idea, like we have some amazing surgeons and physicians in the world and, you know, sometimes they're better than we need. Right. But sometimes it feels like we're focusing on those people and not, like you say, getting that consistency in everyone to some kind of minimum threshold. And that sometimes making everyone great is better than making a few people perfect, if that makes sense. That's exactly right. And, and, you know, this is not the first time, you know, I've had conversations like this because to be fair, it's a lot of the stuff that you do and the stuff that you talk about democratizing education and really making sure that everyone has access to quality education that's measurable, quantifiable, and at some even level. And so, you know, it's funny when I first kind of heard you talk about that and I've heard you say it before, I sort of laughed to say, oh, there's another CEO kind of coming up with some gimmick. And then I realized that's like, I guess that's exactly what I needed when I was a kid. And I wasn't in an area that had poor access to healthcare, right? I grew up in one of the boroughs that now, be it a forgotten borough of New York City, is kind of the one that nobody ever heard of. But still, I grew up in New York City in a relatively normal family with reasonable access. Right? I always had health insurance. I had access to doctors, physicians. I had a pediatrician that I saw regularly and all those things. And even I didn't have necessarily the same quality of access to care just simply by choosing one particular office or another. And so I think much of the mission of what you've talked about before and what you and I have talked about many times in the past is exactly what I learned as a patient in that particular experience. And it brings up another interesting point. I know you and I focus a lot on surgical outcomes and surgical precision and and making sure that you're just getting, doing the best job and getting the best results. But, you know, sometimes it's more the decision to do it in the first place or or what surgery you're doing that can have a bigger impact on someone's life. And that story really captures that, that there's an element of decision-making that's also very important. And it's not necessarily like how you're doing something, but what you're doing. And I have to wonder, I know we have similar cultural backgrounds, but were your parents pretty excited when they found out you wanted to be a doctor? It's funny, they were pretty excited, although I I still think my mom wanted me to be a lawyer. (laughs) Jewish mothers, they want doctor or lawyer, but I think for some reason my mom wanted me to be a lawyer, which is why I think she was so excited when I got married, because I married a Jewish lawyer. And so like she finally had the kids she really wanted when I met my wife. (laughs) They will always find a way to get their way. Uh, That's hilarious. So tell me a little bit about your training and residency and fellowship, because I know you have a bit of an innovator streak and you're, you're a bit of a rebel. Like, When did you start getting interested in in business and innovation? Like, where did that come from? Yeah, I think the business thing came along the way. You know, I come from a family of five kids and two of us are in medicine. My sister's a nurse, I'm a surgeon. And then everyone else does other things. My other sister was in retail. My brother owns his own business. And so I think I've always had a little bit of that business side and learning and understanding and and kind of growing up in a family that didn't have a ton of money learning to budget and and understand those things early on just because we had five kids and not a huge amount of money. So it it kind of worked itself out that you have to take those lessons. And then as I went through residency, I I found myself asking questions like, when you're a doctor, how do you make money? And how much money do you make? And is that enough? And do you have to worry about your bills? And what bills do you have to pay? And I either, I got one of two responses, either, oh my gosh, no one's ever asked me that before. I'm happy to tell you about it. Or, oh, we don't talk about that stuff. Learn to be a doctor. The rest will be fine. Mm. And then you look around and you realize that the fact that that was the answer is actually one of the biggest problems we have today is that physicians are now pretty bad business people and don't necessarily consider sort of 
everything they should be, either when making decisions for patients or making decisions for themselves or making decisions, most importantly, sort of for the healthcare system across the board. It's an interesting dichotomy because physicians are supposed to be the stewards of the healthcare system. The decisions they make affect their own patients, affect their own lives, but also affect everything else because ultimately, especially when you think of the government-run systems, there's a pot of money that needs to be spent and we need to spend it responsibly. Mm. And then you get the answer of, well, don't ask about money. You're a doctor and money or business, these are dirty words. You shouldn't be thinking about it. But by the way, make sure you spend responsibly because you're responsible for the entire healthcare system. It doesn't make any sense. And so as I asked those questions more and more, I realized people either really wanted to talk about it or were afraid to talk about it or thought it was the wrong thing to talk about. And anytime, I, again, this is a little bit of a Staten Island thing. We kind of are a pain in the butt to a lot of people a lot of times. <laughs> It's just built into what we do. That's why we've tried to leave New York City like 10 times, but we never actually do it. We always vote to do it and then stay anyway. But what happens is I find like, like, wait a second, this is a pain point. People are uncomfortable with this. Let's keep pushing at that. Let's see why. Let's try to understand why. And understanding why is what led me to realize that the problem wasn't that people didn't want to know about it, so we didn't understand it. Mm. There was fundamentally nothing built into our education that helped us understand the business of medicine from our own perspective or from the perspective of the healthcare system as a whole. And that's actually where my interest sort of started asking questions about that. I mean, I did my first value type study when I was a fourth year resident. And at that time, no one was looking at cost effectiveness. And I looked at it, interestingly, not in the way that you would think. So I wasn't looking at cost effectiveness of a particular procedure to a particular thing. It went right back to what started this conversation with you and I today. I looked back at the cost effectiveness of a particular technology in the hands of a particular type of surgeon. So we knew that maybe this wasn't great for everybody, but for a low volume surgeon doing a surgery that was very technically specific, meaning if you make technical errors, we know the error the, not as good, in that hands, in those hands, is this technology cost effective? It was fascinating because it was actually the first time that that particular technology was shown to be cost effective. And the problem was it wasn't cost effective to the experts, right? It wasn't cost effective mm -hmm. to the 500 time a year surgeon. It was cost effective to the 30 time a year surgeon. And when you looked at it, 75% of the surgeons performing that surgery did it less than 30 times a year. Yeah. But all of the research was from people who did it 300 times a year. <laughs> that is wild. So the research was never useful to the people actually doing the surgeries. And that's where I really got into the idea of understanding healthcare economics and cost effectiveness and value research. Because all of a sudden, the equation looked different and you realize that the same value equation doesn't fit with the same surgeon or the same patient each time. That's crazy to hear. I'm curious, what was the technology? At the time, that was patient-specific instrumentation for knee replacements. So I don't know if you remember them. These were these uh, 3D-printed, disposable, almost like plastic cutting guides mm -hmm. for knee replacements. And you'd take some type of advanced imaging and you'd use it and it would eliminate outliers, right? That was the point. The point of it was to say like, hey, you're going to narrow that curve. You're going to narrow that bell curve of the technical outcomes of the surgery. And over and over, the data came out saying not cost-effective, didn't make things a lot better, didn't improve two-year outcomes. Mm -hmm. And in big registry studies, that's probably true true because it didn't really work that well for people who did two, 300 knee replacements a year. But when you took the average surgeon doing under 50 knee replacements a year, it made them faster in the operating room, which is a huge cost driver. It made them much more accurate in their alignment targets, which is a big driver of revisions in the future. And it made the patients do better. Mm -hmm. And so it was just about finding the right situation for each technology, which is where it comes down to this super silly thing you've heard me say many times, like the right technology for the right patient in the right place at the right time. Right? So it isn't that every technology is good for everybody. It's that there's some technology that's likely beneficial in very specific circumstances. And one of our jobs as surgeons is to figure out what that is.
But I think just as a general theme, and you know, I've definitely been talking about this for a number of years, that there's a very small group of healthcare professionals of us who are the source of all of our information that we're designing projects around that are driving a lot of this research. And there is this huge group of people who are on the outside who are, you know, we're not looking at, we're not addressing their needs. And, you know, I haven't looked at the numbers lately, but I think caring for the bulk of the patients. And so it's, it's very interesting that some of the research that you've done has shown exactly that. And I think you're very involved in social media and communications. And I think we're at kind of a tipping point of thinking about how we communicate in healthcare. And I'm kind of curious to get your opinion, because this has been a very confusing time for everybody um, in terms of getting good information, of kind of knowing what the current standards are. And it's leading us to rethink of like, is getting all of our information from conferences and major journals really the best way to clearly convey information to a large group of people? And you're starting to see social media become a much more important tool or just sort of alternative communication mechanisms, not just for the public and public health, but for us, for sort of intraprofessional education and communication. Like, I don't know, how are you feeling about all of that? Yeah, you know, I think it's really fascinating if you watch over the last couple of years, just go down the Twitter thread that says ortho Twitter (laughs) and you'll see a lot of nonsense, right? And a lot of jokes about hammers and things like that. But what you'll also see are a bunch of cases thrown out there. Hey, I've got this case coming up. What do you think? We always go back to the adage like there's two ways to do things in healthcare. There's my way and the wrong way, right? And that's how surgeons have always (laughs) have always said it. You're triggering me. Everyone up on the podium says, oh, well, you know, this is the way to do it and this is the way to do it. And then you look at these Twitter threads and it's fascinating because a case gets posted, complicated case, fairly straightforward case, whatever it is, and 15 people respond and they're all a little different, Mm. right? Just a little different, not a lot different, but a little different. And that you can't get on a podium. One person standing on a podium can't provide you seven different options because one of those options is right for you, for that particular surgeon, for that particular physician. It's within their skill set. It utilizes the resources they have available to them. And again, this is one of these silly things. One of the most fun publications I have in my career is a couple of years ago, we published the results of a text message chain that my co-fellows and I had. When we finished fellowship, now we're eight uh, joint replacement surgeons coming out of HSS in the early 2010 era, and we're sending each other cases like every other group of fellows does. We decided to use a HIPAA-compliant platform so we could actually send patient information and x-rays in case we forgot to take the name off. So we got this HIPAA-compliant platform and we started texting each other back and forth. And what we found is six of us of the eight used it almost every day, literally almost every day. And for the first two years, it was at least twice a week. And these surgeons that are in this group are now major academic surgeons, private practice surgeons. The six of us are a little bit of everything. And when we had one of our medical students go back and look at the data, 50% of the time, the primary plan was changed because of the input of these other five surgeons. Wow. So one surgeon would ask, five people would give their opinions, maybe four people would give their opinions, but you got an average of three to four opinions on each case, and 50% of the time you change your plans based on what you said you were going to do. That's the type of education and peer-to-peer knowledge transfer that wasn't available before technology, social media, the ability to simply send an x-ray or share an x-ray so easily. You know, I couldn't pick up one of those big silver old-fashioned x-rays and fold it (laughs) down. and mail it to you and expect to get a useful piece of information at any time, now you can go on Twitter and get 15 opinions in five minutes, right? And I think that Mm -hmm. is something that just wasn't available 20 years ago. And that's going to revolutionize the way we do patient care, education, everything else. And and whether it's going to be designing some whole new platform, whether it's going to be, I don't exactly know what it's going to look like as it matures, but I think you're absolutely right. The way we communicate with each other and the way we educate each other is evolving, much like the rest of the way the world communicates is evolving. 
Yeah, I mean, when I was in residency, I mean, they explicitly told us do not post anything on social media that could like be traced back in some way, shape or form any patient information, even if it's been anonymized. And it was pretty explicit. And it's like there just seems to be a general comfort now with doing this. Uh, I don't know anyone that doesn't post their cases on Instagram or kind of uh, pictures of x-rays, pictures of them in the OR. And I think it is good. I haven't really seen any situations come up where it's compromising for patients, but it seems pretty beneficial for everybody like you described. So two sides to every coin. So speaking of kind of getting back to your rebellious streak and some of the pushback that you got in the early days of your interest in business and especially not only specialization in technology, but ambulatory care, uh, which is, I think, is important for everyone to understand here that you're, you know, one of the leaders in the country and kind of innovating and pushing for the ASC model. I want you to talk about some of the pushback that you got or some of the hard times of people being skeptical, because it's so interesting that from conversations we've had in the past that I don't think people liked your approach or felt that it was kind of rocking the boat, but now you're center stage. And it's just like, how did that kind of happen? Yeah, it's fascinating. When you fall early on the innovator curve, and I think a lot of people kind of know what that is, you got to kind of cross that chasm, then all of a sudden innovation takes off. But when you're early, an early adopter or an innovator, you're going to run into roadblocks. You're going to run into people. And unfortunately, it's a lot of people who say, well, that's not how we do it here, right? And we know that nothing kills business, innovation, or anything like saying, hey, that's not how we do it here. But that's exactly what happens every time you do it. So my first job out of out of fellowship was a private practice. Private practice was a wonderful group of people, really supportive, really great. I absolutely love that group. Went down there and my, my challenge actually was that I wasn't really happy with the hospitals around. The care that they were providing was not exactly in line with what I wanted. They wouldn't exactly follow my protocols. They'd order medications I didn't order. They'd call consults that I didn't think were necessary. And those consults would change the orders that I put in. I just didn't think that they were providing the optimum care. And I said, well, we have an ambulatory surgery center. And this is 2013. And I said, well, you know, in Chicago, they've been doing joint replacements at surgery centers for 10 years. Like, what if we did something like that? And my initial response was kind of like, yeah, whatever. Like, it's not going to happen. This is the new kid who comes in. So I said, all right, I have two options. I could just give up or I could really push for it and see what happens. So I did what people will jokingly, if they know me very well, what I always do when I have a new idea is I made a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> I like love making PowerPoint presentations and ask anyone at HSS. They're so annoyed with all the number of PowerPoint presentations that I make. But I made one and I went to one of our board meetings at this private practice and I put it up and I went through the data. I went through the history. I went through what I thought a protocol would look like. And I went through why I thought we should start doing this at our 100% physician-owned two-room ambulatory surgery center. And it got the greatest response in the world. One of my senior partners stood up, looked at me, laughed, and said, I love when naive children say silly things. No joke. That was a direct quote from one of my partners. Oh my God. He said, look, have fun, whatever. We don't care. This is never going to happen. You can't do that. Do you still talk to that guy? <laughs> all, all the time. He's actually, I love him. He's great. <laughs> well, I probably talked to him in the last three weeks. I talked to him a lot and it actually was an interesting inflection point in our relationship, which kind of goes in very positive directions moving on. But the other thing that happened, right? So it's so easy to listen to the naysayers and be like, oh my gosh, that person didn't like my idea. But just think about it, right? What I was saying was crazy. This is a surgeon who's 25 years in practice, who's barely ever sent a patient home from the hospital. His patients are still staying in the hospital for three days, going to rehab centers for two weeks. And it's been great. He's never had any problems with that, right? His results were good. His patients are happy, right? It's hard to say that there would be a reason to do this crazy thing that I was saying. And then, so it's easy to like look at the naysayers. And then one of my other partners, actually even more senior than him, walked up to me, looked me dead in the eye, said, I love this idea. Mm. This is great. Let's do this. So it wasn't an age thing. It wasn't anything else. It was some people are comfortable being early adopters and innovators, and some people are not. 
And I think one of the things in innovation is to identify who around you are going to be the ones who help you, mm. who are the around you are going to be the ones who just sort of like are going to not care what you do, and is anyone there who's specifically going to stand in your way? Because the people who are going to stand in your way, they're not bad people. They've got motivations that are different than yours, so you need to understand them because if you're going to make a play for why this innovation is useful, you need to understand their perspective. It's kind of like empathy, right? You have to see why they feel the way they feel so that you can address those concerns up front. It's a much easier way to do it than sort of trying to barrel past people who genuinely have concerns. And then you want to find your supporters, those people who really are innovators and early adopters, and say, hey, look, let's do this together. Because no innovation happens in a vacuum, right? It always happens by building the right team, coming up with a good plan, practicing that plan, and then executing that plan. That's the other thing I always tell people is I gave that PowerPoint presentation in around November of 2012, I think it was. We did our first case in April of 2014. It was a year and a half later. And that year and a half was building the team, building the protocols, and literally running dress rehearsals, walking through our ambulatory surgery center, me laying down on the table as the patient, okay, now I'm here, where do I go next? Where are we going to walk? What are we going to do? Do you have pictures of that? I don't. We did not allow anyone to take pictures of that. (laughs) And then you come up with silly things. And again, this is like a silly example, but we came up with the fact that laying on a stretcher, which is what we had at the ambulatory surgery center for two hours while your spinal is still working is super uncomfortable, Mm. right? Because stretchers aren't meant to be on there for more than 25, 30 minutes. So what did we do? We went to the local store and bought those egg crates that you buy for dorm beds and put them on our stretchers. This is a wild story. It was a $20 solution to a problem we never would have realized unless somebody actually tried to sit on one of those things for a half an hour and realized how uncomfortable it was. That's fascinating. And that is a form of simulation that you guys did. Um, did you ever see the movie The Founder, mm-hmm. um, the McDonald's story? They did something very similar where you're trying to get the perfect kind of burger pipeline going and they kept acting it out. And I think that's real. Rehearsal is good for everything. If you're going to make a pitch as a business person, rehearsing is super important, right? It doesn't make you sound robotic. It's only when you've rehearsed enough do you actually get good at it. You know, Sunil Gupta wrote a great book called Backable. I don't know if you've read it fascinating book. And one of the whole things he talks about is the importance of rehearsing, importance of doing it, you know, whether it's first to your mirror, then to your family or your kids or your spouse or your parents, and then to someone who's going to tell you what you're doing wrong. All of those people are important to rehearse whatever you're doing. Again, a pitch in medicine, a surgery you've never done before, whatever it is, rehearsing in a safe environment is the only way to make the final product really predictable and successful. And what you're also describing is just very similar to kind of agile methodology, right? This idea that you have unknown unknowns and the only way to even know what the questions are is to try things. You know, you went down the road of like, well, let's see what this is like from an experience standpoint or from an efficiency standpoint, and you got those answers. What I'm kind of curious is, this is such a great example of of innovation. And then you have sort of like kind of the roadblock, potentially saboteur type, and then kind of the early champion, right? Which is always, you have these kind of early innovators. And when you talk about crossing the chasm, so to speak, you know these people pretty well. How is one person different from another for them to be so interested and excited about this while another was so concerned if they were at similar levels of experience and seniority? Was it their personality? Was it some specific situational thing? Is it just random? What is your sense there? I think it's a little bit of both, right? There are some people who are just incredibly risk averse, right? In general, they're just, they're not willing to rock the boat. And there are some people who love to rock the boat. There are some people who it's their favorite thing to do is to kind (laughs) of get out there and try something new and annoy some people or whatever. And, And sometimes it's just people's inherent personality. Sometimes it's experiential. And here's what I meant before by trying to understand people's feelings about it, right? If you have a a surgeon who's had a couple of complications early after surgery, maybe they had a patient who died on post-op day one or two. Look, these things happen. They happen. Bad things happen in medicine, and it's just part of medicine. 
And so if you've had a few of those, those shape your experiences, those shape your thoughts, those shape your attitudes. Mm. I mean, there's no doubt that the old kind of joking saying that you heard, I'm sure, in your residency too, is like everything you do is based on your last complication. Yeah. It's like whatever your last complication was, you're going to do everything you can just to avoid that. <laughs> it's so until true. Until you cause a new complication. But it's true. Our methodology gets very influenced by our most recent experiences and our personal experiences. And no matter how much you read in a textbook or what kind of podcast you listen to or what kind of experience you learn from someone else, it's our own experiences that are the strongest shapers of our perspectives. And so I think learning that and understanding that is very helpful when you're dealing with somebody who might not be supportive of an innovative idea, mm -hmm. because you may be able to find the route to it and then help that be your way to explain to that, whoever that person is in whatever role they are, a way around their thoughts or to address their concerns. Another thing that I've noticed, obviously in medicine, we fail all the time in the sense that they always say, if you're not getting complications, you're not operating, right? We're used to things not going well, not going our way. But at the same time, I find that we have a discomfort with failure outside of a clinical context. So it's like failing on a test or failing to get into a program or failing a business endeavor or some sort of a new initiative that there is an intense discomfort or fear of it. I mean, I had it at first going into this world of business and innovation. Uh, you know, I wasn't used to just every day, everything's going wrong and you're failing constantly and just you know, pick yourself back up. Do you think that that is also a component? There's no question. And I think the problem here is that failure for us, number one, it's common, but it is so emotionally challenging. When your patient has a complication, you don't sleep that night, right? For 24 mm -hmm. hours, all you're doing is going over in your head that surgery. What happened? What went wrong? Did I do something wrong? Did I make some mistake? Was there something I could have done differently to prevent it? And so every complication, every one of those failures is massively emotionally difficult to deal with. And they add up over time. And what happens is that we say, look, the only place where failure is acceptable is in the OR because it's unavoidable. I just can't. My job, my soul's job is to prevent it anywhere else, huh. to make sure I don't fail anywhere else. And the other thing is, don't forget, most of us didn't fail a whole lot on our way. Some did. Great stories of people who failed and came back and all these other things. But if you look at the majority of physicians, they did well in school, then they did well in college, mm -hmm. then they did well in medical school, and then they got the residency in their top five residencies that they wanted, right? There isn't a, actually a lot of failure along that way for the vast majority of people in our field, which is why it's so hard to convince people that failure is not a bad thing. And when the business side, failure is just part of business, right? Especially in innovation, right? You got to break some eggs to get there and you've got to have some businesses that fail. I was having this conversation with one of our administrators recently in the idea that one of the problems we have in involving surgeons more in innovation is their absolute aversion to failure. Yeah. Like if this doesn't work, forget it, then it's over. Because if that happens in the OR, it's true. If something goes wrong in the OR, that patient's life is forever affected. Forever. And that's bad. That's something that we all have a really, really hard time with. So I think since that's the only type of failure we know, we have a very, very hard time with it. Yeah. I've never heard it put that way. Honestly, you gave me goosebumps. It makes so much sense. I'm not nearly as clinically active as you. And I still, I think about some of my personal failures all the time. And I can't imagine having, when you're operating on hundreds of people a year, having all of that built up. Um, and it makes a lot of sense. So you do a lot of testing, a lot of rehearsal and you launch and you know, you have a great success story. So tell me about your return to HSS and how all that came about and how people reacted to your initiative. 
We had our program up and running. It actually grew to be one of the largest ambulatory surgery joint replacement programs, certainly in the area, if not in the country. Um, and have a very small sort of center in a pretty populated area, but definitely not in a major city, right? We were sort of halfway between Philly and New York. And it was great and everything was going well and I was super happy and things were good. And then, you know, one of my mentors from my fellowship called me up one day and said, hey, look, we know the world of orthopedics. You know, this is five years later. So this is now 2018 and, and things are different and there's a lot more ambulatory surgery going on in joint replacement and it's really growing and and they knew that this was the direction they wanted to go. Plus they had opened this new satellite office that they were looking for someone to work in. And they said, look, we could try to build this program on our own, which will take us a few years. And then we're going to have to figure out, or we could just ask you to do it. So would you want to come back to HSS and help us develop, design and run our ambulatory joint replacement program, which sort of bleeds into sort of high acuity ambulatory surgery. So like when I think of ambulatory joint replacement, it goes right along with ambulatory spine surgery and any of the other type of high acuity surgery you're trying to do in a lower acuity site of service. Mm -hmm. You're taking your joints and spine and trauma to the surgery center. You're taking some of your surgery center cases to the office. All of those transitions require kind of the same thought process and protocol-based decision-making. And so to come back and help them do all that And so I was really excited because, you know, again, here's one of those things like you think you're going to show up and everyone's going to be really excited to see you. And I think they were excited to see me like as a person. I'm friends (laughs) with everyone and these are my colleagues. But I sit down at the first meeting and they're like, yeah, we're not going to do that. No way. I'm like, oh, we should start sending home 20% of our joint replacement. I said, look, in my last practice, 60% of my cases went home on the same day. And I had one or two or three really big proponents. And, you know, if any of them are listening, they know who they are. And then I had a lot of people looking at me like, yeah, Mike, you do that. Uh, Let us know how it goes. But we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. And for the first, I'll call it year and a half or so that I was at HSS, there were four or five surgeons who did a good amount of ambulatory surgery. And there's 35 joint replacement surgeons on our service. And about 30 of them who did not one single ambulatory case, despite me coming back and saying, hey, you brought me back to do this. Let's do it. And I built the protocol. And it was literally one button they had to click. If they click this one button, it all happened for them. No one did it. And the reason they did it, it's not the way they do things, right? And if you think it's not the way they do things matters in a 12-person orthopedic specialty practice, try to change something at the largest orthopedic hospital in America. We always joke, it's like steering a cruise ship. Like it takes hours to make a cruise ship make a turn. So to pivot something at a major institution like HSS or any of the other places isn't easy and isn't slow, unless you're assisted by what we call a global pandemic. These things really help innovation. What was a very small program a couple of us using before COVID, now it's 100% of the service. No way. I did not know that. Now every single surgeon on the service does ambulatory surgery. And the reason is that patients don't want to stay in the hospital anymore. They loved staying at HSS. HSS has a Michelin chef. (laughs) The food is great. The view, you couldn't pay a million dollars for the view from the patient rooms of the East River of HSS. I mean, it's perfect. Patients never wanted to leave until they found out that hospitals aren't great places for healthy people, Hmm. right? Until COVID. And then all of a sudden, every one of those surgeons who gave me that kind of like, hey, yeah, maybe we'll do it eventually. I don't see any reason to do it. My patients are just fine. Now all of them do it, right? Because now it's the patients driving that transition. And so sometimes innovation happens in a kind of slow way until someone kicks it in the rear and shoots it over the edge. And the same thing for many of the other innovations that you and I have talked about, many of the innovations that you've worked on in your career, they were going well and moving well and you were starting to build momentum. And then something drastic interrupts that and either it kills the innovation or it absolutely explodes it. Hmm. For us, it feels horrible to say that there are positives that have come out of this horrific time, but uh, we saw significant acceleration very similarly, like overnight of just like, oh my God, how are we going to train people now? We can't 
get together, people are getting sick or people are burning out and dropping out. So very similar kind of overnight step function in something that was already greatly needed, but you just needed a little bit of a, a tailwind or a push. A thing that I talk a lot about and I hear a lot of people talk about with, with startups and innovation, and we talked a little bit about failure, but also grit. And you're telling me this story of like, I imagine you must be so excited to come back into HSS and you did it, you figured everything out and you can't wait to just do all this stuff here. And I imagine that some of this pushback was probably unexpected. Was there a point where you were just discouraged? Like, where do you think you get your grit? Your level of persistence and patience is, is like really astounding and impressive. How did you deal with that? And, and where do you think that comes from? I think being an athlete helps, right? You have to fall down a lot, right? Being a gymnast, you fall down, you land on your head, you break things, you kind of get up and keep moving because that's your only other option, right? And if it hurts a lot, then maybe you go to the doctor. <laughs> but most of the time you just keep moving. So I think that helps a little, but I think like many people in life, it's so easy to try to give me some weird credit like I did. I didn't do anything. I just came up with an idea and kept working with it and worked with teams and friends. And I have the most incredibly supportive family on earth. And so it never feels like a roadblock. It never feels like you're trying that hard when you're doing something that you A, believe in and B, you enjoy. And this is like when I talk to people and I talk to like old friends, older children and stuff like what do I want to do with my life, whatever. It doesn't matter what you want to do with your life. Just make sure you're having fun with it because then it doesn't require grit. Then it doesn't feel like you're really working. If you like what you're doing and if you believe in something, whatever that something is, if you make that what you do for a living, then it doesn't feel like anything but continuing to do something you really enjoy. And the roadblocks come and they leave and, you know, they sound worse than they were or they were worse than they sound. It sort of all depends on perspective. But as long as you're having fun every day and doing something you believe in, and, and you and I, we have the best job in the whole world, right? Being a physician is the greatest thing that you could ever do to be able to care for people makes the rest of it really easy. Well, if there's any take-home point for people listening in, I, I really think it would be that. I was given very similar advice, and that is ultimately what led me to pursue what, at the time, everyone thought was a crazy thing to leave mainstream medicine and start a virtual reality company in the metaverse. My mom was very concerned at the time, but someone had given me very similar advice. If you just pursue what you're passionate about, success naturally comes from that, and success is not something you kind of like chase down, so you're going to have a much harder time or it's going to be a lot less enjoyable. It's also about conviction, right? When you're doing something that you enjoy, you're going to keep doing it even if you fail. And when you walk in a room, it's very easy to convince other people that you are correct, that your solution to the problem is the right one. Why? Because you truly believe in it. If you take a job doing whatever it is that you don't enjoy and something comes up, you're going to be the first person to be like, yeah, maybe this isn't right. Maybe this stinks. Maybe I'm just wrong. But if you've got conviction, if you believe in what you're doing, if you believe that virtual reality is going to change, fundamentally change medical education for the rest of time, and you believe it, number one, you'll be right. And number two, if it doesn't work the first time, you're not going to give up on the idea. You're just going to say, okay, that technique didn't work. It wasn't executed correctly, I'm going to try again. But the, the idea behind it that you believe in, that you've got the conviction to believe in, you're still going to believe it. And that's the same for almost every type of innovation. The ones that fail are not the ones that were bad ideas. They're the ones that were led by people who didn't believe enough in themselves or in their idea. Yeah, and you really better believe in it too because it's uh, <laughs> it gets hard very quickly um, and you need to just keep waking up every day like wanting to be the one thing that you do. I totally agree. So, I mean, here you are, <laughs> you've encountered headwinds, you had success, and then you know, you're stepping into an even bigger role thinking it's going to be real easy, even more headwinds than before, but suddenly things change, the world changes, and you are promoted as chief medical innovation officer for the Hospital for Special Surgery. I mean, Congratulations. I'm so impressed and proud of you. And um, just kind of curious, like, 
What does that mean? Like, what are you going to be working on? Like, what are you excited about? I'm so interested. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. That's very kind of you. And it's like everything else in life, the way I look at it, it's just another opportunity. It's an opportunity to try to be involved in a slightly bigger way to help others do what they want to do. So our Innovation Institute really focuses on improving healthcare innovation across a couple of different arenas in terms of like new devices, in terms of new care delivery pathways, in terms of new ways to interact with the healthcare system, in terms of education. But, you know, when you look at at HSS specifically, it's built on these sort of four fundamental pillars, right? It's clinical excellence, education, research, and innovation. And the way I think of it is what innovation's role is at an institution like ours is to learn from those other three, from clinical excellence, research, and education, and see where we can make things better. That's all it is. And so we provide the opportunity to everyone on our team, not just our physicians, But our surgical techs, our nurses, our administrators are dealing with healthcare on a day-to-day basis across multiple platforms, and each one of them probably has a hundred ideas that would make this better, right? And I always joke, like, the best surgical ideas we have come from our surgical techs and nurses. They're the ones, boots on the ground in every single surgery that say, gosh, if this just worked a little better, my whole day would be better. And guess what? That leads to some of the biggest innovations in surgery. Mm new tools, new devices, whatever it is. And so the Innovation Institute is meant to harness that. And my job is really to be the liaison, to be the go-between the people we have on our innovation team, which are everyone from engineers to attorneys to commercialization experts to administrators to other surgeons that can help guide ideas to liaison between them and the people who come up with the idea. So you have an idea, you have this great idea, you're trying to decide where am I in my idea pathway, what are my roadblocks going to be, and I'll sit down and we'll talk to everybody and we'll go through some of these things. And my goal is really that we can accelerate the idea to the finish. Because it's all about time. Innovation is very time dependent. If you wait too long, the idea is either not worth it anymore or somebody already had it. It already came out. You don't want to rush, but you don't want to sit around. And so I would just love to see the pace of innovation keep up in healthcare the way it does in everything else. Because as you know, healthcare is brutally slow with innovation. It took us 8,000 years to go from writing things on a chart to putting it in a computer. (laughs) I think that's the exact number, actually. And right now, I promise you, someone faxed me something in the last three minutes. Now, let me explain something to you. I don't know what a fax machine is or where I would find one. I'm Googling it as we speak. But someone faxed something to me, right? That Why? <laughs> what? Why on earth are we still using fax machines? So healthcare innovates brutally slowly. And so I think one of the things I'm excited about in this particular role is to help move healthcare innovation more towards the speed of technology innovation where we can really make things happen in a way that is responsive to the market and responsive to the need of the most important people who are the patients. Well, um, (laughs) I'm still laughing about the fax machine comment, which is crazy and very true. Now that you're kind of in the driver's seat here and at the center of it all, like what are some technologies or innovations that you're really excited about or trends that you're seeing? I think the biggest trend, obviously, it's going to be all about data, right? This is going to take us back to how this conversation started, to the first thing you and I talked about. One of the things we focus a lot on is surgical technique. I need to cut the bone here. I need to put the implant here and everything's going to be fine. But what you alluded to, in fact, I'm pretty sure I'm going to steal your words exactly, is the problem isn't so much in the surgical technique, it's in the decision-making. And so right now, we're using data to guide surgical technique. I'm going to put my knee in this angle. I'm going to use this particular implant. I'm going to fix this bone with this particular device, plate, screws, whatever it is. And we're using our data all to guide surgical technique. The future of this is going to be to use the data to drive the decision-making. 
And so I really think that as we adopt more technology in the operating room, whether it's robotics, whether it's computer systems, whatever it is that's going to help us gather the intraoperative data, we marry that with all of the stuff we learn afterwards, these patient-reported outcome measures, just patients' general satisfaction, how they did, what complications they did or did not have. And we create these algorithms, these, you know, everyone calls it artificial intelligence. It's not really that. It's, it's machine learning algorithms, right? It's algorithms built that a computer can do massive amounts of data and spit out something on the back end. It's a lot like the research we always did, but instead of on 250 patients who had supracondylar femur fractures pinned with either two or three pins, we're going to 5 million patients mm. who had it done. And here's the each of the individual things. And that's going to drive not surgical tools, but decision-making tools. Mm -hmm. Not just how do we do the surgery, but who should have surgery? Who should not? Some people with bone-on-bone -bone arthritis should never have a knee replacement. They just shouldn't. Some people with humerus fractures shouldn't be put in a hanging arm cast. They should get fixed right away. There's all these different decisions that get made that we don't really have a great guide for. What we have is everyone's personal experience. And as we started this conversation talking about, that's not always the same. So just like we want to narrow the outlier curve of our surgical outcomes and our surgical techniques, we want to narrow the outlier curve of the decisions that we make so that I could go back to my 14-year-old self and see any physician I wanted, and they all would have diagnosed me within four seconds of standing up and all would have sent me to physical therapy instead of putting me on an operating room schedule. That's what it all comes down to. And that's where I think the most innovation is going to happen in the next 20 years. Wow. I don't want anyone to think that this conversation was planned out so well, but incredible way to tie it all up in a nice little bow there, going back to your childhood. So thank you so much for sharing your story and things that you're excited about and, and the future of medicine. Really grateful to have had you on the show. I learned so much. Um, I'm so glad we had this conversation. I just want to end on a very important question, which is, where is your favorite pizza place and what's your favorite kind of pizza? There's a problem with this question, right? I'm from Staten Island. So the little known fact is the best pizza in the whole world is on Staten Island. There's always this New York City, Chicago thing. That's, that's a separate debate. Obviously, New York City pizza is better than Chicago pizza. We all know that. <laughs> But within New York City, only the people who actually live in New York will tell you the best pizza in New York is in Staten Island. Huh. In fact, one of the only reasons people from outside of Staten Island, from the other four boroughs, ever go to Staten Island is for the pizza. There's two places, a place called Nunzio's and a place called Danino's. They make very hot, very thin pizza. It is absolutely spectacular. And if you can't find those, there's a very small place right next to where I grew up. I used to walk there from house named Barrio's. Really, really incredible pizza. I'm a just plain pizza, eat it the right way. Very simple. My kids are big pepperoni lovers and everything else. And I'm happy to have that. But give me a good, fresh Staten Island slice of pizza, and I'm happy every day. Wow. Well, uh, great answer to the question. A lot of con Speaking of conviction, a lot of conviction there. So um, uh, now we have a good reason to go out to Staten Island together. Dr. Ask, congratulations again on all of your success. And thank you so much for being a part of The Slice. Justin, thank you so much for having me. It's absolutely an honor. What a great conversation with Dr. S. It's been wild to watch his career and how quickly he's progressed from a new joint replacement attending to a worldwide phenomenon in outpatient joint replacement to chief medical innovation officer of Hospital for Special Surgery, which uh, is still crazy and amazing to me. And I think the one nugget that I really take home of talking to this rebel or maverick in the space of joint replacement is that when you have an idea, a lot of people are going to push back. 
they're not going to think it's a good idea, or they're going to be scared of change, or they're going to want to maintain the status quo. And you just really have to, at some point, believe in yourself and what you're trying to do to drive change. And I think there's no story I've seen lately like Mike's, where he is leading the charge in an entire industry now where outpatient joint replacement is now the norm, whereas even his own mentors and good friends told him it was a terrible idea. So thank you, Dr. Ass, for leading the charge and inspiring all of us to believe in ourselves and improve the world and global health. Thank you to everyone who tuned in to today's episode. If you liked what you heard and want to know about the latest episodes, updates, and resources in the world of medtech, make sure to follow The Slice anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Follow OsoVR on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit us at our website at osovr.com. Special thanks to our producers, Rachel Roberts, Sterling Shore, and Shauna Davis. I'm your host, Justin Broad, and we'll see you next time on The Slice.